Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Health Disparities Podcast, conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I am Dr. Bonnie Simpson-Mason, and this week we are recording our conversations at the National Harbor in Maryland, where we are enjoying a program of speakers and workshops at the annual Movement is Life Caucus. Father Gregory Boyle is the founder of Homeboy Industries, the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. Father Greg witnessed the devastating impact of gang violence on his community during the so-called decade of death that began in the late 1980s and peaked at 1,000 gang-related killings in 1992 in Los Angeles. In the face of criminal justice policies of suppression and mass incarceration as the means to end gang violence, Father Greg, along with the parish and community members, adopted what was a radical approach at the time to treat gang members as human beings. In 1988, they started what would eventually become Homeboy Industries, which employs and trains former gang members in a range of social enterprises, as well as provides critical services to thousands of men and women who walk through its doors every year seeking a better life. Father Greg, thank you so much for joining us today and for joining the caucus. Thank you. Good to be here. You and I have something in common. Um, I identified a void in medicine in that I'm an orthopedic surgeon, but there weren't too many orthopedic surgeons that looked like me. And I decided to develop a solution from a nonprofit perspective to help create a pathway and to tool and resource young people who were either women or minorities or both to take an untrodden path into this field of orthopedic surgery. It sounds like you identified a void in your community back in the 80s. Tell us a little bit about how you thought about approaching filling the void that you saw And was this something that you had some foresight in or you saw the void and said, look, we have to do something. We have to fill this right now. And then you galvanize the resources to do it. Yeah, uh, it's good to be with you here and uh, and to speak this afternoon to the folks at the Movement is Life Caucus. I, you know, I was 100 percent reactive, you know, okay, uh, because I was pastor of the poorest parish in the city of Los Angeles and nestled in the middle of two public housing projects, the largest grouping of public housing was the Mississippi, and we had the highest concentration of gang activity anywhere. So we had eight gangs at war in my parish. So I started to bury kids in 88, which was the beginning of what I would call the decade of death, 88 to 98. Mm -hmm. So uh, two weeks ago, I buried my 231st young person. Mm. But in those in that first ten years, you know, shootings, morning, noon, and night. Once I had eight funerals in a in a three week period, so it was all reactive. There was no kind of plan. There was no even noticing the void. It's just what are we going to do about this? And, and we began a school, which was our first thing, because okay. because middle schools were the first to say. Yeah, we don't want these kids here. So gang members who were that young now are wreaking havoc in the middle of the day in the housing project. So they're violent and selling drugs and writing on the walls. And and so I, I went out to them. I said, you know, if I could find a school that would take you, would you go? And, and 
alone and isolated, they would say, yeah, I would. You know? And then I couldn't find a school that would take them. So we started one. Wow. And, and that brought gang members to the church. And, and then they said, if only we had jobs. So we started a jobs program. So it was 100% uh, reacting to the next thing. So nobody ever intends to become or sets out to become the largest gang intervention program in the planet, you know, you, you evolve, you back your way into it. And that's exactly what happened. Sure, sure. I, I love the concept of um, treating gang members as human beings, as being, you know, the core premise or core value of Homeboy Industries. Um, just to share another quick story with you, I trained in orthopedic surgery here in Washington, D.C. in the mid-90s. And that was at the height of gang activity here as well. And I trained at D.C. General Hospital, which was our county hospital. And I know you have big county there at Los Angeles. So I treated a lot of gang members. And um, it was interesting to me. I, you know, I wouldn't always know they were gang members. They were, they were patients and they were people. And they were just as you know, sensitive and you know, experienced pain just like anybody else. And I think I, I, I was able to look at them through a different lens at that point. So share with us how you're able to communicate treating gang members as people to your team, to your staff, but then also to your uh, clients as well. Yeah, you know, hearing that line about tr- treating them as, uh, gang, as human beings, you know, it's kind of... Uh, old now because okay. it, it's, it more represents what was happening at the time that gotcha. you were you were working mm-hmm. in the 90s, mm-hmm. early 90s and, and as well. It, there was the demonizing of the gang member was was writ large. It was just huge. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's less of an issue now. But um, you know the first we're 31 years now as an organization, but the first 10 years were marked by death threats, bomb threats and hate mail. Yeah. Never from gang members because they always saw Homeboy Industries as a, a place of hope, but from people and and I'm embarrassed to say law enforcement officials would send anonymous letters saying we hate you, you're part of the problem, because they had so demonized this population. So now it it feels sort of quaint to talk about it because, sure. but but it was really you lo- it's hard to retrieve death threats from our first 10 years, because now there's nothing like that. But it was a thing you needed to do, uh, unless you're convinced that we belong to each other and that that there's an idea out there that's taken root in the world, it's at the root of all that's wrong with it, and it's the idea that there just might be lives out there that matter less than other lives. And so that was, I'm happy to say, that was a more necessary message 30 years ago than it is today. I mean, you still need to assert it. But, um, you know, as Barack Obama says, anybody who doesn't think progress has been made hasn't paid attention. Mm -hmm. Progress has been made. And in Los Angeles, you you just don't see the kind of wholesale uh, demonizing of this population in the way you did from law enforcement and from the general populace. But it's always an important thing to say people matter. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear, especially you know, from um, just a different perspective outside of necessarily healthcare, that you see some hope and there's been some evolution just in the mindsets of how we are embracing um, yet another vulnerable population. 
right, mm-hmm. who, who are quite vulnerable for any number of reasons that that you well know. So, you know, we want to tie it back to, you know, our the work we're doing here at Movement is Life, particularly around healthcare disparities. How would you describe essentially, you know, how you address the state of health of um, the young people that come through your program and what types of healthcare or health support do you give them in terms of either literacy or, you know, reactive care or access to care? How do you all approach the health component? Well, you're always trying to announce a message by being an organization like Homeboy Industries. You know, what if we were to invest in people rather than just try to demonize them and incarcerate mm-hmm. our way out of mm-hmm. stuff? So, but that touches everything. It's not just full employment. It's also certainly mental health, which again, the first 10 years, gang members never agreed to therapy and never agreed to group work. And now, uh, you know, every single one has a therapist. We have four paid therapists, and we have 47 volunteer therapists, including two psychiatrists. But the stigma that was so oh, sure. pronounced, mm-hmm. in our, again, in our first 10 years, is just not there anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, and now we have a lot of cooperative places. You know, we have... Uh, kind of a medical uh, uh, truck that's there three days a week. Okay. And so we're providing uh, health services all the time. We have connections to dental and eye. And for all our... So we have 15,000 folks a year who walk through our door. So mm. so every gang member... There are 120,000 gang members in L.A. County, 1,100 gangs. Uh, I suspect there isn't a single one who doesn't know where we are and what we do. Yeah. So it, whether they go there or not is is completely up to them. Uh, and and like all recovery, it takes what it takes, you know. But there are huge systems of inequality, you know, in our criminal justice system as yep. well as in the great disparity in access to health care. Educational disparities abound. So we're, we're always trying to address those things uh, at a micro level. And then by doing it, we announce this message at a larger macro level. So, but mental health is, is, is a huge piece of it. And, and that's, these then become tipping points, you know, sure. where, where once you've removed, I think, the stigma, especially for this population, to therapy and mental health uh, uh, progress, then you're, that toothpaste is out of the tube. You're not going to really go back mm-hmm. to people suddenly stigmatizing it again. Well, we certainly hope that the U.S. could actually shift. We could, you know, as a whole, shift our mindset around the stigma um, around mental health. So I'm glad to hear that it's shifted in, in your program. And that's, that is a culture shift. That takes time. Like you were saying, it takes a lot of work um, because I think people minimize the um, effects of trauma or not just the individual in the circumstance, but to the family, the community, that that PTSD essentially is extensive even to the staff, right? And even to And the team. ACEs, the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences exactly. Study, you know, that this has real impact on people, not just, it has impact on their physical health. Yep. Um, you know, if you're a four or five, you know, professionals would say, wow, you know, you're really uh, going to have 
physical health issues, mm -hmm. to say nothing of the social, socializing issues. But everyone who walks through our doors at Homeboy is a 9 or a 10 on the, on the scale, and 10 is the highest. Mm -hmm. And I say 9 or 10 because it's hard for male uh, gang members to acknowledge sexual abuse. Sure. All the females, certainly, all, every single one has been sexually abused. Mm -hmm. But but it's harder for them. So 9 or 10 is just, that's, by contrast, I grew up in the gang capital of the world, Los Angeles, and I'm a zero on the ACEs study, mm -hmm. you know. So th that doesn't say anything about my moral superiority. It, it says how random, you know, I just won these zip code lotteries and parent lotteries. And so as a society, we need to kind of stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it. And we're not there yet, but, but uh, everyday progress. I, I agree with you 110% because I have to say that when I care for, um, you know, the population at DC General, the, the county hospital here essentially, the patient's there were more grateful than at some of the other hospitals. I actually did my internship at UCLA, um, so I was actually in Los Angeles in the mid-90s before I came back to D.C. So I had that contrast of being in Westwood, <laughs> the Westwood part of L.A., but I also um, spent time at Charles Drew, and I was there for over a month as well, so I think I, maybe I wasn't too far. Well, you're, that's East L. You're in East L.A., yeah. and I was well, on the other side, closer yeah. to Compton. Yeah. Um, but all of that was, you know, for me, it was really a privilege to be able to look at life through a different lens and, and be sensitized, right? And it. yet it's interesting you mentioned Westwood. At the time you were there, yeah. there was a, a, a shooting, a killing of a, a graphic artist named Karen Toshima, that just galvanized the whole city. They, rewards were offered. Police were pulled from other places. Mm. Um, you know, a huge task force. Detectives were reassigned because a life in Westwood was worth more than, than the eight kids I buried in a three-week period in Boyle Heights. So and that was why I started to actually keep count because they didn't count. They didn't matter. So that's why I always have a number of how many kids I've buried. It was precisely because of that period of time when uh, this, this one death made the news front page and galvanized uh, the attention of, and where all the deaths in my community, the poorest in the city, got no attention at all. You would just see so many of our people coming th through the emergency room, right? And you knew it wasn't right. Yeah. And that essentially nobody cared about them. So we, you know, we would work 100, 120 hours a week because we wanted to be there for yeah. our folks. We knew no one else was there. So the fact that, you know, this reaches everyone, you know, this touches everyone. And for some people to think that it doesn't, touch them or impact them in some way, I think it's a huge disconnect. But there's also a moral, does. high moral distance we strike. We, yeah. kind of, we somehow blame people for their own um, deaths. We blame people for their own uh, misfortune. And it's really peculiar. Where we, we don't have any kind of reverence for how complex poverty is, the disparity is. We have no reverence for um, 
how the poor have to carry more than anybody else. And, and yet we want to demonize it. We want to get it to a place where we think it's really about uh, people's moral uh, like bankruptcy. They like they chose it. Right. Nobody chose, right. nobody would choose. That's right. And we're all born <laughs> wanting the same things until, until things derail it. And it's not because people are choosing despair and trauma or even mental illness. Exactly. They're, oh. they're really just choosing to uh, somehow um, stay connected. They all want what everybody else wants. We, we all want you know, we all want the best for our families and our children and our lives. And I, I have to say, you know, from being in C-suites with executives, you know, and hearing what their concerns are behind closed doors to, you know, treating young man on the stretchers just been shot. You know, where's my mom? You know, someone who's maybe even committed murder, caring for folks and having to see him as a person and seeing the letters he's receiving from his family members who care about him and love him. It's interesting though with with county jails, uh, county, excuse me, county hospitals. For 20 years we we do trainings for the interns at county uh, hospital mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. the people there had started to see a coarsening of the the physicians who were treating like mm. it was a war zone and and they their term was the scumbag factor oh, that geez. they were starting to to hate the patients the gang members who came in who were patients yeah because they they kind of uh, connected them of course to the the rest of the violence and the and the wounded that they were Seeing so it was interesting. This is twenty years ago, sure. and it was it was a good insight. And since that time, once a semester, we go over there to all the uh, yeah whatever you would call them interns. I They're guess interns first yeah. year yeah. positions. First, yeah, first yep. year, mm-hmm. and and it's so it's a way of putting a human face. It's a way of uh, leading people to a more spacious understanding mm-hmm. of of who people are, so that they don't slip into right, a, right, a right. kind of a demonizing. We, we really don't like these people who are coming in as our patients who are, gay, who are covered in tattoos or whatever. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, um, as, as physicians who are either in training or in practice, you know, we don't um, get any mental health or social or emotional help or support ourselves when we are witnessing so much trauma, so much violence, and so much death. You just go to the next patient. So I think the that's intervention right. on the front end is huge, but you know I think that's a huge void in our medical education training and in support of healthcare professionals, especially those who are on the front line. You don't get any support. You sign a death certificate. You know you you <laughs> fill out all the details, and then it's on to the next patient. Yeah. And you're not expected to. You're not given time to process it, nor are you expected to let it affect you and your you know, care for the next patient. But and, we know that that's not realistic. <laughs> yeah. And, and then to underscore how lethal things have become, the, mm-hmm, my, mm-hmm. I've been doing this for 35 years, so I would uh, spend every day in probably three hospitals. These are just parishioners of mine when I was pastor who who were shot. So so it was buckshot in 22s, and, and it was not as lethal. Then cut to the last 30, 15 years, rather, mm-hmm. of those 35. And, and 
there's a likelihood that if you're shot that you're not going to make it. So the number of wounded I visit are very few because if a bullet hits you, you're, you're not going to survive it. And, you know, just underscoring again how, how grave that the gun situation is. And, and even in the gang community um, in, in, in Los Angeles, are you seeing a lot more use of automatic weapons? You Absolutely, seen that? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, so there's even, you know, gun science in in healthcare, and I had the opportunity to do some of that work as well. Cause so many of our, you know, general orthopedic patients were gunshot wound victims, and like you were saying, there were handguns back then, and maybe you know a shotgun here, mm-hmm. a shotgun there, but once you have the introduction of the um, high-powered firearms, um, made a difference. Made a huge difference. A deadly difference. Made a deadly difference. So, so, you know, we are completely intrigued and in support of, you know, your work. And um, just out of curiosity, has your model been replicated in any other um, uh, urban areas? Yeah, so probably in 2008 was the first time we had an entity. It was Wichita, a bunch of stakeholders who wanted to have us airlift Homeboy into Wichita, and we thought, gosh, do we want to start doing this? So we decided not to, but we said okay. we'll offer technical assistance, and then that's grown now to what we call the Global Homeboy Network. So okay. there are 147 programs in wow. the United States modeled on Homeboy in 16 outside the country. So we gather every August for three days, all our partners, we call them. Good. So from Scotland to Guatemala City to... Chicago um, to San Diego. So, so places um, I was just with in, in Bridgeport uh, that's starting, and they don't call themselves Homeboy Industries. This one was Homebridge Ventures, or there's Rise Up Industries in San Diego, or, or Braveheart Industries in Glasgow, Scotland. So they all have the same methodology okay. in terms of healing, sure. healing hope and hiring. <clears throat> So, and, and they're not all gang members. Sometimes it's uh, returning citizens, you know, sure. uh, or disaffected youth or street kids. or. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of the same principle. So, um, and it's very heartening to gather every August. So, so people come and everybody shares what they're doing, uh, you know, with best practices and such. If you, you know, could share with us in our closing moments, you know, what are the next steps for our homeboy industries and caring for the health and well-being, you know, of the folks who come and seek your support? Mm-hmm. We just got a big grant two days ago. So because uh, we want to, we think there's, you know, our, our ages range from 14 to 65, you know. And so uh, with the younger gang-involved kids, th- there's a kind of a service that needs to be different than what you provide to the adults. So uh, we're, we're going to kind of have that intentionality and a new site and a new building that's just geared uh, to the 14 to mm-hmm. 21 group, you know. Uh, and we've always, 14 is the age at which you can actually get paid for working in a nonprofit. So, um, so that's the age at which we begin. But their needs are, are hugely different oh, sure. from a 31-year-old gang member. So, yeah. um, so we're trying to do that. And the other thing is um, residential. Uh, you know, 60% of gang members 
are homeless. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, virtually homeless, sure. essentially homeless. Home insecure yeah. on any That's number right. of levels. That's right. So they're couch surfing or whatever. Sure. And so, so we're going to build uh, two residential uh, facilities that have the intention of uh, creating a community of kinship. That's awesome. I mean, essentially, you are you are addressing the social determinants of their health on any number of levels. And to hear you doing it from ages fourteen to sixty-five, um, that's a huge span. Huge. Our sixty-five people are the ones who get out of prison after thirty years, and they're starting to release them. So yeah. we have a lot of those. As exactly. Well. Which is a whole nother set of wraparound services That's you need right. for them. Well, right. um, we are so happy to have you here today sure. with us, Father Boyle. An Thank honor. you for sharing us with us today. And um, these things touch all of us um, in a way that I think is important. So I think you've given all of us permission to, you know, move in in, in our mission and see how we can support our, our fellow man. So I would like to thank our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. Join us again at the movementislifecaucus.com website, or you can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. New episodes will post every two weeks, and look out for our special series featuring thought leaders from our partner organizations who are working to end health care disparities with passion. Thank you so much. Thank you.